0: Hey everybody, it is Drags episode 15 of Jungle War, a Cincy football podcast. This week, I welcome back Charlie Goldsmith of the Cincinnati Inquirer doing a great job along with Kelsey Conway, following, uh, covering the Bengals. Follow Charlie on Twitter at CharlieGdoubleUnderscore. How you doing,
1: Charlie? I'm doing well, thanks. And I get asked a lot about the Twitter handle, so I'll explain it here. Charlie G underscore was obviously taken And my name, Charlie Goldsmith, is too long to fit as a Twitter handle. It's too many letters. So you kind of had to pick which part of the name I wanted to put in there. And I I came up with what I thought was a happy medium. I understand it's not easy, but you do the best you can.
0: So Charlie G is very easy to remember. And the double underscore is kind of a pain in the ass. But had Charlie underscore G been taken?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. There's a famous Charlie Goldsmith, right? And, and he has a lot of the, him and his brand have a lot of the combinations of the, the words Charlie and Goldsmith tied together, taken up. So I really did had to get creative. Even a lot of the numbers were taken. I would have had to have gone to some pretty obscure numbers if I wanted to go that route. So uh, again, the double underscore seemed to be the smoothest way to go. It can't spell it wrong. So I guess that was the thought process.
0: Charlie G double underscore again, be sure to follow, um, Charlie on Twitter and that'll do it for this week of jungle Roar. That's a joke. <laughs> These are pretty heady times, Charlie, for the uh, Bengals. They're five and two coming off that incredible 41 to 17 win in Baltimore. They certainly look legit. Charlie, can they act legit? Can they handle success?
1: There couldn't have been a better recipe. To show what the Bengals were capable of this season, than exactly the test they faced in Baltimore. The team, the quality that they had, the reputation they had, and then individually on offense, on defense, how much Lamar specifically and how much Don Martindale's Blitz specific game plan had challenged the Bengals before. You put that all together, and it, it would probably have been one of the hardest games you could possibly draw up to pick the Bengals to win. Yes. And then to win the game 41 to 17. Again, because of those factors that I mentioned, like it's about of as impressive as a win as you could have possibly even drawn up for the Bengals and the fact that they did it so decisively and in a way that I think, like, I think it was the most repeatable game. And we can talk about that more. Like there was nothing really that fluky about it. Yes. Great point. Correct. You know, no takeaways. Um, It wasn't a game where Baltimore was heavily penalized. No deep balls really to chase. There wasn't a seventy-yard play, which is hard to sustain. All of that piece together gives you know gives that win even more credibility.
0: There was, of course, the eighty-two-yard Caction run, but that's to your point. Yeah, but to your point, that is that was not an eighty-two-yard bomb. That was um, four missed tackles, which was shocking to watch. uh, Wink Martindale's defense just kind of uh, disintegrate there in the second half. And, uh, we'll get, we'll get to the offense in a little bit, but I want to get Charlie to your, uh, terrific story. Uh, you did, you wrote right after the game and I was in the, uh, press room with you, uh, as you were asking about the linebackers, the combination of, uh, using two and three linebackers and swapping them back and forth. I thought that was interesting. Cause I tweeted during the game Uh, at least in the first half. I wasn't a big fan of having three linebackers on the field at one time against Lamar uh, just because I didn't think there was enough speed on the field, but I was proven wrong. I thought as the game went on, um, it wasn't just Logan Wilson uh, playing very well, doing his typically good job uh, bringing uh, ball carriers down to the turf. Uh, but it was also Akeem Davis-Gaither uh, playing well and Jermaine Pratt playing well. Uh, I think they got tremendous, maybe arguably their best game out of the linebacking core on Sunday.
1: I think it was the best game plan they've had with Luana Rumo. Like, uh, do you know how gutsy it's got to be to enter the game with statistically one of the def- uh, defense that's in the top five to 10 in most of those major categories? And then to say for the game against the Ravens, you're going to scrap all that and try something completely different. And then for that strategy to work as well as it did, better than it ever had in any game the Bengals had played against Lamar Jackson. Um, it's a testament to a well-prepared and intelligent group of players that were ready to take on that challenge. And the other testament, I think, too, is like how much they mixed it up on third downs. They were the defense that was really, I guess you could say, imposing their style of play and right. keeping the ribbons on their back foot just because how many changes they made on third down. It was stuff I'd never seen the Bengals do before, and it, it worked right away. It, it immediately clicked, which is something that's really hard to execute in the NFL.
0: Well, what's interesting about what you bring up, Charlie, is having covered Belichick uh, in New England for you know a quarter of a century. He was a game plan head coach, meaning, and he was that way back with the Browns in the early '90s. He was that way, of course, as a defensive coordinator with those uh, historic giant teams in the '80s uh, and the 1990 Super Bowl uh, champion Giants. He would always throw out everything and come up with a new game plan for the game coming up, especially against a unique offense that they were facing. For instance, um, everybody remembers and knows, I think, that uh, Belichick's game plan for Super Bowl twenty-five against the Bills, um, the Red Gun offense, uh, is in the Hall of Fame. That game plan is in the Hall of Fame in Canton. And it's because Belichick threw everything out and said, we're going to try something new. We're uh, going to go with uh, more that we're going to go with only two down linemen and we're going to try and confuse the bills and, and dare them to run the ball. And they didn't. And I thought that was kind of, you know, what, uh, Luana Rumo did on Sunday is he kind of dared the, the Ravens to do something, um, in, in terms of letting Lamar run with the ball all the time and it worked. I mean, yes, Lamar had 88 yards. He's the sixth leading rusher in the National Football League this year, but he didn't, what he didn't want was Lamar running out of the pocket, no pressure on him, and throwing the ball downfield.
1: So, like, what we had seen so much with Luana Anarumo is him, like, his big changes had always been in the secondary. He'd change up, like, different zone principles from the safeties. he'd change up up different coverage schemes and what the cornerbacks were doing. Like I especially remember the Eagles game last season as a game where like the secondary was just doing completely different stuff. And that Mm -hmm. didn't work as well last season as very little did for the Bengals defense in 2019 and 2020, one of the worst statistical units in the NFL. But what what made it so different against the Ravens was how much changed up front with the way like just in the first five yards at the line of scrimmage the way the defensive linemen and the linebackers were, I guess what they were asked to do and the way they were executing their responsibilities, it was completely different from blitzes coming in different places, from shifts at the line of scrimmage to Trey Hendrickson. Like, on one of the biggest plays of the game, they sacked Lamar Jackson on third down to take him out of field goal range, forced him to punt from the 40, no field goal, right in the third quarter. I thought that
0: was the single biggest play play of the the game, game, by the way. I kept tapping James Rapine on the, on the shoulder. I was like, if they win this game, remember that sack.
1: And so what I remember about that, I'm pretty sure I have this right, Trey Hendrickson lined up on the right side, and he went up against the right tackle. Trey Hendrickson was lining up on both sides of the line of scrimmage more than he had done previously in his career as well. And they were doing different things with spies, with linebackers. Sometimes it was like Larry Ogan Ogunjobi who served a spy role. Sometimes it was a safety, different players blitzing from different places, just engaging with blocks to open up defensive linemen to be the free runners. There were so many new wrinkles. And that was the difference between previous iterations of the Lamar Jackson game plan they'd had before.
0: Yes. And, you know, you, you quoted, uh, Trey Hendrickson, in your article, it's the brilliance of Lou, Uh, Trey Hendrickson said, you know, he's scheming things up and you know, it's our job to execute it. So when guys step up and make plays, that's what we want. Defensive players, especially guys who have a high motor like Trey Hendrickson and Sam Hubbard, uh, they want the game in their hands. They want the defensive coordinators to say, yeah, we're going to try something a little different. You're going to have to play a little different uh, from a different position or a different angle on the field. But go get them. And that's what I thought um, Rumo did a terrific job of on Sunday. He really empowered that defense.
1: Yeah, um, like the responsibilities that he gave them. The trust that he gave them, even down to Akeem Davis gaither who probably did more things. Like if you know what I'm saying, there had yeah, more no, he had more
0: him. responsibility. It exactly. looked like he, when he was on the field, he had. I thought he uh, did a reasonably good job of setting the edge, and that's usually something obviously you expect uh, the defensive ends to do. But when you're you know sending the rushers up field very. Uh, aggressively, uh, certainly with regard to Trey Hendrickson, uh, you have to have somebody behind him or you're screwed in the run. If he uh, cuts up field, you have nobody there. And that's one of the reasons I think the three linebacker system works so much is that when the three linebackers were on the field, uh, there was more of an aggressive up the field uh, attack against Lamar.
1: And what I was the point I was making, though, like the trust that they put in Akeem Davis-Gay, they're a bench player for them. He did everything from set the edge, as you say, to his kind of primary job was to cut off the first down line since he had that vertical head start and be in the position to force someone to change directions or make the tackle right. himself. He did everything from that to guarding Mark Andrews. Those are two very different responsibilities, and those are two crucial responsibilities against the Ravens. And the person who was asked to do that was the person who had played the least for the Bengals this season. And just everyone on the defense was trusted to win their one-on-one matchups. And the defensive players rewarded that faith that this team put in them.
0: How did you think Trey Flowers did against Mark Andrews? I thought in the second half there were times where he was, you know, he was assigned to him and Akeem Davis-Gaither was not. And I thought Trey Flowers for, you know, you speak of uh, uh, Akeem not having that much experience this year, not having that many snaps, which is certainly true. Um, he had more snaps on the field than Trey Flowers did as a Cincinnati Bengal as Sunday was his first game, obviously, since being acquired from the Seahawks. How do you think he did?
1: That's the moment I'd love to, like, I'd love to hear that idea get tossed out on, like, Tuesday. Some random defensive assistant goes, I got it. We put Trey Flowers on Mark Andrews. And I'd love to hear the reaction and then how that game plan unfolded. Like, it turns out that Flowers has a long track record of going up against Andrews as far back as college. And then when Flowers was in Seattle, I just just went back and did some research kind of on Monday, curious. Like, they had a pretty long track record of Flowers winning those matchups. And it was one of like four different looks they gave at him. There was a lot of Davis Gaither. Sometimes it was Von Bell or Jesse Bates and one-on-one with Andrews. They consistently gave them different looks, but yes, one of them was a player who literally had never played for the Bengals and didn't give up a single mistake in his first game with the team.
0: Yeah. And, um, you also uh, bring up the fact, uh, Charlie, that on third down, Anna Rumo put seven players at the line of scrimmage. He blitzed all seven players, including safety. I think I remember this, Ricardo mm-hmm. Allen and Vaughn Bell. I mean, you don't see that very, very often, but it, it was almost a throwback, I thought, to the Mike Zimmer, Paul Gunther days where you had guys blitzing from different uh, spots on the field. And it really, in, in the days that Those blitz packages from Zimmer and Gunther were really effective. Uh, They were unpredictable. And that's the unpredictability I think you saw on Sunday.
1: There are different wrinkles to every third-down scheme, but it gave me flashbacks to Ravens versus Bengals at MNC Bank Stadium in 2020. It had a little Ravens defense blitz kind of vibe to it with the number of players who were at the line of scrimmage, the types of players, safeties, linebackers, slot corners, at the line of scrimmage presenting either a bluff forcing the Ravens to uh, account for the possibility that they could rush but then on two huge plays in the fourth quarter they actually sent everyone twice back to back and the combination of those two things as I mentioned just kept Lamar on his back foot it was something I don't remember seeing from the Bengals that type of deployment as close to the line of scrimmage with so many different players it's something that teams have done against the Bengals more than the opposite and they saved it for the Ravens. And it, again, it worked for the first time.
0: All right. Speaking with Charlie G, follow him on oh, Charlie Goldsmith. Speaking with Charlie Goldsmith, I'll call you by your official name uh, of the Cincinnati Enquirer covering the Bengals. On Twitter, you can follow him at Charlie G double underscore there. I got it right. Anyway, uh, what impressed you more, Charlie, uh, on Sunday? Holding Lamar to 17 points on his home turf. Um, knowing that Lamar came into that game as certainly, along with Kyler Murray, a a leading candidate in the early MVP race, or dropping 41 on that defense that was top five or 10 in most categories, and you did it on the road. What impressed you more?
1: I'll say, uh, here's how I'll explain it. It's the second one, what the Bengals did, dropping 41 points. And I'll narrow it down to two plays, the two 20-plus-yard rushing touchdowns that Mixon had. and had. Like what those two plays reminded me of, and no one made the same accusation this time, but after the Bengals beat Pittsburgh on the road, Tyler Boyd said, you know, as as we all remember, they made the Steelers quit. And that really showed with how the Bengals continue to have success and run the ball and just – burst through the Steelers defense in the last in the end of the fourth quarter. This was if you just look at the runs and how the Ravens defended it. This was even more glaring in how the Bengals were just a physical dominant team and the Ravens just weren't combating that at all in the fourth quarter. The Bengals couldn't run the ball in the first half. But in the second half, the edge specifically the fourth quarters, they ran out the clock. The edge that the Bengals were playing with, the Ravens weren't even close to matching that. So the answer I'll say is the 41 points. And it's because it was such a decisive and um, uh, again, uh, an edge the Bengals had that the Ravens didn't, and frankly didn't even look like they were trying to match in the fourth quarter. That's the kind of intangible difference that winning teams have.
0: So I will tell you one thing that impressed me about, and I will go with the 41 points also um, because I, I think Luana Anna Rumo has a terrific defense and, I think it was awesome that they stopped Lamar, but given the way the game plan was executed, I wasn't as surprised by that. I was shocked by the 41 points, namely the 416 mm-hmm. yards of passing again on the road from uh, Joe Burrow and the 201 yards by Lamar, by uh, Jamar Chase. And those two statistics alone kind of tell you the ability that the Bengals have to put up prolific offensive numbers, those numbers that we've been begging to see from the Bengals in the first six weeks. Right. I mean, how many, how many times have have there been complaints voiced in that press box? When are we going to finally see this uh, Bengals offense explode? And they, frankly, they really didn't again in the first half, they had 13 points uh, at halftime and they had had 14 points in three other halftimes. But In that second half, the way they dominated offensively and what really impressed me was the way they used C.J. Uzama. And I know Kelsey did a story on this, but C.J., I've been really wondering when the Bengals were finally going to start using a tight end like Uzama when you've got three wide receivers that demand such attention. Uzama is going to be open on single coverage constantly. I saw it in in New England with Brady and Gronk. You've got the same type of situation setting up perfectly for this Bengals offense, and you've got a quarterback who can realize that and get the right matchup on the field. I I think it's very exciting, and I think it's going to be very curious to see how Uzama is uh, used the rest of the year.
1: I think schematically, one of the biggest differences in the entire Bengals offense is the value and the premium they're placing on how they use their tight ends, specifically Uzama. That deep ball to CJ—that was a play designed for him. Right. I'm curious how many plays in 2019 and 20 Taylor called designed for the tight ends ever? Frankly, to be honest, they yeah, and it not- just
0: bugs me when when really good receiving tight ends, and I think Uzama is that, aren't employed.
1: Well, that's part of it too. I think like CJ had never been that throughout his entire career. He's having a great start to the season. He's getting pretty close to that point where he's going to already be setting career highs in like week 10, week 11, week 12. He's having such a different style of season with his productivity and his role than he has ever had. Partially, it's a credit to him for taking a step forward. And then again, partially is a Bengals offense, placing a premium on how they use tight ends. And Like, how many times have we seen them go 13 personnel, burrow play action, and throw the ball to one of their tight ends? I can think of four or five plays like that. The Bengals are incorporating their tight ends into their passing game plan. More than they ever have. And a huge credit, a huge part of that belongs to Uzama for being in the best position he's ever been in to be a dynamic receiving threat. And that's just, as you mentioned, open up more for the offense.
0: Well, and I'll tell you another thing it will do, Charlie, is it's going to open up the run game. Because if you mm-hmm. start spreading guys, I, I think you, you don't even have to go in 13. You can probably go uh, in 11. And if Uzama's on the field, maybe even 12, and you can get two other deep threats on the field uh, on the outside, you've got the the chance to do you know the reverse play action, look like you're going to pass, and then you know run – Mixon off a draw, run Chris Evans, run P-Run. I, there's so many opportunities for this run game to really get started and start to dominate teams. Uh, and that, and I think the way you really, uh, like they did, uh, exert their will and dominance in the fourth quarter by running the ball, that's what they need to do earlier in these games to kind of wear down defenses.
1: Oh, completely. You've seen several first halves. One of the big issues has been the inability to run the ball. Yes. And – the, the counter for that, though, is how effective they've been in the second half, specifically. Like The run game kind of shifts when the Bengals have the lead and how they try to use it. Mixon, for, I, I, it's hard to really prove it, but I just think that Mixon's a better football player when the Bengals have the lead, and I think that stylistically you can do more. He's a closer. With him. He is exactly. You can definitely do more with a closer. Him. You can do more with him when you're running out the clock, and he's that type of physical back. Um, who when you don't need the 20 yard play is able to get the five when you're up a score or two. Like, yep. I, I can't, I can't remember a time where he didn't virtually get the save. Like you saw for the first time with this Bengals coaching stuff when they beat the Browns in 2019 down the season, that was a Joe Mixon game, a Joe Mixon statement game. Then last year when they beat the Jaguars, the one win they had when Mixon played not Mixon's fault. I mean, let me uh, add Um Mixon was the closer against the Jaguars and had an incredible game running out that clock. And blow games this season. I mean, the one you'd look to is Detroit. how great Mixon played in the second half. Then yes, then on Sunday, how well Mixon did in the fourth quarter to make the final runs to chew the clock and seal the game. every time and then just to go back this year as well, Pittsburgh, he had a productive game and they did the same thing. like every time the Bengals have needed that with this coaching staff, Mixon has provided and frankly i don't think he gets enough credit for that
0: yeah i'm glad you brought up the closer uh reference and getting the save uh, i know your baseball um background is coming into play here and you do terrific uh work covering the reds uh you miss covering the reds by the way now that their I, season is over
1: every every season has its strengths so i love covering football now and then in february i'll be ready to go to good year
0: yeah i'm sure you will be um Going back to Joe Mixon, uh, he only carried the ball, Charlie, twelve times. P. Ryan had eleven on Sunday, and that surprises me a little. I mean, you, but that is part of the element of when you throw the ball around the field like the Bengals did on Sunday, uh, and get some big plays. You don't have to; you can run the ball to kill the clock, and that's essentially what the Bengals did on Sunday.
1: Yeah, they're great running the ball to kill the clock. And if we're talking about weaknesses of the offense, they're bad in most other situations. I mean, there, there might have been two or three third and short runs that the Bengals. Oh, attempted.
0: I'm glad you brought that up. Okay.
1: And, and and then they just abandoned it. So,
0: well, they are going to have to eventually find a way to convert mm-hmm. second and short, third and short. So there was a mix in, if I, yes, there was a mix in nine yard run. It set up second and one. They run the ball into the line nothing they sneak and and you called it and i was going to scream it out in the press box just as you were uh saying the dive play when you yelled that out you remember this of course of course it was right uh, and you're like this is that with with it was uh was it p ryan in front of Mixon? yeah and i could uh, do
1: a whole podcast on this play oh please the
0: stage is yours
1: go so so the reason i knew it was the dive play is because I'd watched it so many times from the Colts game last year because it was the last play Mixon was on the field for in the entire twenty twenty season. And for all of Mixon's strengths, he just has different he I remember he had different posture on the play. Also, I remembered that they went into a heavy personnel with multiple tight ends close to the line of scrimmage and without their best receiving threats on the field. And then of course they put P Ryan at fullback, which is the exact same thing they did against the Colts last year. That play when they handed it to P Ryan in Indianapolis was an epic failure, and the reason they lost the game. And then this season, I go, this is this this rings a bell, and it was the exact same play. Mixon had the same posture, um, P Ryan had the same stance, the same personnel, and it didn't work last time, and it didn't work this time either.
0: So that Indianapolis game, that was the game they went up what twenty-one yep. nothing, right? Yep. And 24 14 and couldn't hold on to the lead because they couldn't run the ball. They could, you know, that's, I'm glad you brought that up, Charlie, because in that game, they could not do the things that they're doing this year. When they get the lead, they, are not a, they were not a good front-running team. And obviously, uh, toward the end of the season, they didn't have Burrow, they didn't have Mixon. I understand all of that. They didn't have Jamar. We all understand that. But they are doing things this year when they play with the lead that is much different than the 2020 and obviously the 2019 Bengals.
1: I think they're even better at passing when they have the lead, too. I think that's an area where C.J. Uzama comes into play. I think that... You know, again, this isn't a stat I've checked, but I would bet you that for all the talk we've had about Tyler Boyd and what his role is, when the Bengals are up a touchdown or more, I would bet Tyler Boyd's targets and his targets are are through the roof compared to where they are. I get that same sense. Um, That, like, again, when I go back play-by-play of when Boyd's been used, it's when, like, it's after guys like Chase and Uzama and Higgins have – broken the dam almost and given the Bengals the lead then based on the counter reaction by the defense, like there was a play. Boyd was more wide open on that pass in the third quarter than any Bengals receiver was in the history of the franchise. Um he, He's had a few of those moments this season where when the Bengals get the lead, Boyd gets more involved. So there, there's, they are a lot better in a lot of areas and that's one. of them. All
0: right. Uh, we're going to move on to the New York jets. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is a game the Bengals have to win. I mean, we've had a couple of them. We thought that the the game against the Jaguars had to be a win. Game against, and barely was. Game against the Lions had to be a win. And in the second half, it certainly was. They were clearly, I mean, Detroit had no business being on the field with them. And that was a very good sign for the Bengals at the start of this current uh, three-game road trip. This game against the Jets, the Jets just got train wrecked 54-13 by the Patriots. no Zach Wilson. He's out with a PCL injury and probably no C.J. Mosley, their best defensive player, their most consistent and biggest playmaker. Um, This has to be a win in New York, right, Sunday? There's no if, ands, or buts about that.
1: As much as, like, as I started off this podcast, the Ravens game was probably the hardest possible game you could drop to pick the Bengals to win. And, of course, they won it. Like This Jets game is the easiest possible game you could drop to pick the Bengals to win with the Jets' limitations at quarterback. Like The Jets are worse at running the ball on third and short just from the eye test, me watching them, than the Bengals are. That's a real testament to how much the Jets' offensive line and their run game up the middle is struggling. They have some speed in offense, but they don't have much else. And I was very unimpressed with Mike White. And then the defense as well. I mean, look at the screens, the yards after catch, and then the deep balls that uh, an unexplosive Patriots offense was able to create. I mean, at every (sighs) single level, the Bengals have so
0: bad. I mean, just I I just can't see a way where if the Bengals just go in, take care of business, don't get injured, uh, all of that. um, They don't come out of New York with a win and, and a solid win. Like I'm talking 10, 14, 17 points. I mean, this is a game where the rosters are not competitive. They're not. And, and I've talked about that a lot this year on the podcast, that the Bengals are starting to play to, to their roster and the strengths of their roster. The Jets, I mean, Elijah Vera Tucker uh, is probably one of their better draft picks. He's going to be a very good interior lineman for them. He's somebody to keep an eye on. Watch him. He's number uh, 75, the left guard for the Jets uh, this coming week. But they don't have a lot of other weapons on the field At all to speak of. I mean, they have Jamison Crowder. They have Corey Davis. They've got a couple of veterans uh, on the um, edges, on the perimeter of the wide receiving game, but not much else to consider in this game.
1: So this is a very deep cut. Um, They remind me a lot of the Butch Jones Bengals, or excuse me, the Butch Jones Bearcats.
0: Oh, whoa. Okay. (laughs)
1: 2014 era. And here's why I like I watched a game yesterday. Like basically they have four plays and that was always the thing of the Butch Jones offense. Yes, they have the out route to Corey Davis, the Bengals, excuse me, the Bearcats always had that one physical outside route receiver. Mike White would throw corner, uh, you know, out route passes to Corey Davis. Yep. That was They scored their first touchdown, did it a couple times, but White doesn't necessarily have the arm strength to make that a consistent play in the offense. They have the outside run. Michael Carter, their running back a rookie is fast, but their offensive line isn't getting pushed consistently at all, and he's not advanced enough in his reads to make that a consistent play. They have a slot fade, which the Beng- the Bearcats would always run for Woods. I forget his first name, but Woods. You could live live, live Elijah Woods. Different Woods. No, no, I played for the Bearcats.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. uh, but I could be wrong. Never mind.
1: Yeah, like they were just like, Zach Klairs was just like throwing up to him 10 times a game. And as I mentioned, Mike White doesn't have the arm strength to make that a consistent play. Like he was sailing balls into the sideline. It was not a consistent play at all for the Jets yesterday. And then their fourth play that they ran, they actually ran it for a touchdown. A very nice like reverse to Elijah Moore. I really like Elijah Moore. Very fast. He's not catching the ball consistently yet. Um, But that was the one good touchdown I saw where... More came, like some pre-snap motion, caught the ball instead of the running back on the handoff, and then took it around the other corner, uh, around the right tackle for a touchdown into the end zone. Some very nice running ability from a wide receiver there. But as Bearcats fans know with the Butch Jones offense, those four plays don't make a great offense. And that's especially true when you have a quarterback in Mike White who, just based on my evaluation, has, like his passes have very little arc. And also his pocket awareness was a huge issue. A number of balls deflected and a number of plays where like when, right when the first pressure came play was over and he would just run and throw the ball away or get rid of it, throw the ball into the line of scrimmage, stuff like that. So it, it'll be an easier jets offense to scheme against than most teams.
0: Yeah. And, and I think they'll be ready. You're going to hear a lot uh, this week. Uh, we just got to keep our nose to the grindstone, do our, do our job, um, keep, focused on the task at hand, not think ahead because, you know, the week after this, they come home and face the Browns and I hate the expression trap game, but, really it is it's a trap game it's on the road but it is a trap game as the bengal's uh have a game a, which is going to turn into be a huge game against the cleveland browns at pbs um the week after this jets game and then they uh, go into their bye so uh, what else are you working on charlie what's up and uh, did you uh, you were on the flight back with me uh from baltimore that was um that was an experience
1: you know if that's as bad as it gets, I'm willing to live with, it was like two, three hour delay. And it was a very nice airport. Lots of food options, short lines. Agreed. I made the most of the day and got some work done and I made it back, which is all that matters.
0: Yeah. But how are you with turbulence? I'm not good. I I am the first one to tell you I'm like a three-year-old baby boy um, when the plane starts rocking and and, uh, swinging back and forth.
1: You know, I was locked into the book I was reading, you know, no distractions and the middle seat in row 20 or whatever from uh from me and my row but uh i know what you're saying i i can live with turbulence i i, I was fine
0: yeah and there were, and and you know fortunately uh, there was no dropping of the airplane like Correct. the airplane that, that's did-
1: key That is key. That is
0: key. I've been on a couple of those, and those are a whole different story altogether. Um, You know, we had some wind. We had some delays, but uh, we got back safe and sound. Thank you, Southwest. Thank you, the wonderful pilots of Southwest for getting us back on the ground safely after some turbulent air. Well, the Bengals are not experiencing any turbulence right now. They take on the jets. Get it. See these uh, metaphors I'm making concerning air travel? With, the, that's with as, the Bengals playing the Jets, Charlie?
1: That's like in, in 20 years, I hope my transitions are this good. Like that is a, a veteran radio and podcasting move right there. I'm very impressed.
0: Thank you very much, Charlie. I hope I am breathing in 20 years. But uh, that's another podcast for another day. I want to thank Charlie Goldsmith uh, for joining me on this edition of The Jungle Roar. It was a blast. You can download this podcast everywhere you download and listen to your favorite podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. For Charlie Goldsmith of the Cincinnati Inquirer, I'm Mike Petralia, and this has been The Jungle Roar Podcast.